Due to harsh language and violent content, listener discretion is advised. The podcast which you are about to hear is an account of the horror suffered by a group of three adults, Stuart, Arnie, and Brock. Though they had experienced horror before, had they lived very, very long lives they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and the macabre as they were to see with this retrospective series. For them, a movie review podcast became a six-piece symphony of terror. The events of this viewing were to lead to one of the most bizarre podcasts in the annals of Internet history. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Retrospective Series. Discussing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 2003 remake, starring Jessica Biel, Jonathan Tucker, Erica Learson, Mike Vogel, Eric Balfour, David Dorfman, and R. Lee Ermey, directed by Marcus Nispel. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Brock, and ah, I smell bullshit. You're speaking, of course, about R. Lee Ermey. The drill sergeant from Full Metal Jacket. He will forever be known to me, I think, to a lot of people as the guy who screamed major malfunction and got his head blown off. All right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So we Again. We, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah. he's, he's absolutely right. It's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Again, like, all right, here we are five feet deep now, five episodes in, and I feel like Groundhog Day. It's like I go watch a movie, same movie. Stop. When will it end? But I got to say right off the bat, obviously, this is a different tone. There's a lot more money involved. You got Michael Bay, for better or for worse, involved as Platinum Dunes produced this of much higher caliber, at least in terms of production values, than any of the sequels at all, or the original, for that matter. This is probably the most expensive Texas Chainsaw ever made. Which isn't saying much, considering how much the other yeah, ones right. made on a shoestring yeah, budget. Right. Yeah, but your, your point is valid, because this thing has a bit of vision here and there as well, and so there is a lot to be set up front before we get into this that this movie certainly looks like somebody had an idea to remake this movie but it's really nice to see that there's a vision behind this arnie you're the fan of this so i think that you should do the honors you know i was the one that championed the first one i think i'm going to put it to you why don't you summarize for us this new texas chainsaw mask i will because despite the fact that it is a remake it has its differences in this one Four friends, Morgan, Andy, Kemper, and Kemper's girlfriend, Erin, are returning from a vacation in Mexico on their way to a Leonard Skinner concert. The boys are also excited as they've succeeded in smuggling two pounds of pot over the Mexican border into Texas without being discovered by the Border Patrol or by Erin. On the trip, they've also picked up another member, hitchhiking hippie Pepper. Driving through a deserted area, the five come across a bloodied girl walking in the road. They pick her up and start to take her into town, and the girl starts to panic, pulls a gun from between her legs, and kills herself, bloodying the van. The kids ditch their pot and go into town to find the police, stopping at a local store filled with rancid, rotting meat. The woman there sends them to the mill to meet the sheriff, but instead they encounter Jedediah, a little boy with some deformities to his face. Leaving the others to wait for the sheriff, Aaron and Kemper explore the woods to find Jedediah's house and come across a large plantation house and its owner, a wheelchair-bound double amputee named Monty. Also in the house, however, is Thomas Hewitt, also known as Leatherface. Leatherface kills Kemper with a sledgehammer to the head and drags him off while Monty distracts Aaron. Aaron returns to the van where the other three have met Sheriff Hoyt, played by R. Lee Ermey. Hoyt forces Morgan to wrap the bloody body in cellophane, and Aaron and Andy then return to the plantation to search for Kemper. Andy meets up with Leatherface, who chainsaws off Andy's leg, hangs him from a hook, and wraps the leg stump in butcher paper. Aaron again returns to the van where the sheriff has found the remains of a joint. The sheriff sadistically makes Morgan replay the girl's suicide, including sitting on the bloody, brain-covered seat where the girl shot herself. 
and the sheriff then arrests Morgan and takes him to the plantation house. Aaron and Pepper are attacked by Leatherface. Pepper is cut in half, and Aaron escapes to a trailer with two creepy women inside drinking tea and watching a baby. Aaron discovers that the baby was kidnapped from the girl they found by the road, but is drinking the lady's tea and is drugged, waking up in the Hewitt house, where we get to meet Leatherface's mother, Luda May, who excuses Leatherface's actions as reasonable since he was picked on in school. Aaron is put in the basement where she finds Andy hanging from the hook, and at Andy's request, Aaron kills him with a knife to the stomach. She finds Morgan, and Jedediah shows them the way out, but they're chased by Leatherface. Leatherface kills Morgan and chases Aaron to the slaughterhouse, where Aaron sets a trap and cuts off Leatherface's arm with a meat cleaver. She's then picked up by a trucker, and as she's babbling incoherently, just like the woman from the beginning of the film, the trucker takes her back into the town to the store where the sheriff is waiting. Aaron escapes the truck, steals the baby from the store, steals the sheriff's car, and then runs over the sheriff multiple times before escaping. And then the film ends on a bit of a cliffhanger as we see archival footage Blair Witch style of police searching the Hewitt basement when Leatherface comes out of a dark area and kills both police. And John Larroquette tells us Leatherface was never caught and the case remains open to this day. That's quite the summary. And I think in your summary, people will hear for certain the absolute similarities from the original one but a lot of derivations as you said and i think we talk about this every time we do remakes what are you bringing different to the table as i said in a previous podcast i had only seen texas chainsaw massacre the original back in 87 and so it was over 15 years later that i saw this remake and when i saw it I honestly thought this was like a shot-for-shot psycho-like remake. And then I went and bought the original thinking, wow, the original was really good too. And then I didn't like the original. So So, to me, this is a totally different movie. But my question is, given that basically the only similarities between these movies are kids driving through Texas and come across a house that has Leatherface in it, as well as other crazy family members. How is this more similar to part one than part three or part four was? Now, part two is kind of its own unique little snowflake, so I I don't include it. But every single time, it seems like we have people driving through Texas, getting broken down, coming across the house and meeting Leatherface and his totally new family every single time. Yeah, it's it's remarkably different. Each time, it just reinvents itself. No, (laughs) movie it's the same movie come on but someone doesn't jump through that window they jump through the other window i mean come on they do the same tricks and clearly the director and the screenwriter have watched the original they're savvy enough in a post-screen world to know that we have too and i appreciated that i really got the sense that they didn't want to insult our intelligence by doing everything as it had been in an era when let's face it Back in the 70s, they were inventing the cliches. So to do them now would be ridiculous. They'd have to put spins on it. And they did. And for the most part, I would say they were welcome changes that kept it interesting. Case in point, the hitchhiker. I really couldn't remember that character. And I was pretty sure, even upon seeing her wandering on the road, she was not going to be a family member. That she was not going to be the hitchhiker that was going to pull out a knife and stab people in the van or take their picture and burn them, that they weren't going to do the same thing, that she wasn't in on it. She was a victim and not one of the Hewitts. So that was a nice change. And I obviously couldn't remember how they got rid of her, and that was kind of novel as well. It built. I appreciated the fact that the tension built on itself. They had a dead body. They couldn't just pick up and leave. That's much more effective to me than, hey, we ran out of gas, and we can't wait for the truck to arrive. We have to go wandering away. And I want to build on what you just said because it's exactly I'm, – I'm right there with you. With the hitchhiker change, which for me is key to this entire movie, working or not, for the viewer. Because what it is is it gives these kids a situation which they cannot escape. And instead of having a bunch of coincidences, everybody's in on it in this town. One thing leads to another leads to another because they just keep walking into a new shitstorm of trouble because they're trying to do the right thing. What's amazing about that is for the first time since the first movie – the tension does build. I felt that the movie had some brains behind it, that it's not taking for granted that I just am going to go along with any bullshit they throw at. They didn't just, she just didn't commit suicide. She blew her brains out in the van. So the kids, even if they got rid of the body, still had a bloody car that they had to 
get rid of. So they had two situations there, the body and the van, which really added to their situation. That's the thing that the other sequels were missing. It really worked for me that they finally brought that aspect back. And what I like also is that I actually could relate to some of these characters and root for them. In the past few movies, we have not had characters who were in the least bit likable or knew how to act their way out of a paper sack for the most part. Here, you've got a good group of kids who are very believable. I don't know any of them from anything except Jessica Beale. I now know. But this was the first time I'd ever seen her. And shocking fact for our listeners, I'm not a big Seventh Heaven fan. So <laughs> I want to start with John Larroquette because he's back. They actually got him back. Like I said, they've studied. They know what's funny and, and what to keep and what to twist. It's a very post-screen movie. They know that their audience is savvy, and they know they can't give them the same dish. So that was the right choice. What did you guys think of that opening with the footage of the police and the teeth? I really thought it set a great mood of the whole going back to the these events are real from the first movie and all of that. I thought it was fine, but I've seen a lot of things like that before. That had the whole movie be a flashback is not exactly, you know, it, 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 I think it worked, Arnie, but I, I wasn't as uh, hook, line, and sinker uh, as you were on there. I think the movie started working for me more once we got into the van. So. Yeah, I, I can't get effusive about it. It was fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the one touch that I did like is that as they're walking through, he points to the wall and says, there's nails in here. And then later when we see Andy taken to the basement, we actually see him put his fingernail in there. I thought that was a nice little call. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I thought the detail was really good on it. I just, I like the style of it. I like the way it kind of sucked you back to the 70s with, you know, the cops carrying around this big old-fashioned microphone as he talks into it. Hmm. I, I'm not sure it would be in uh, black and white, but whatever. Um, uh, why is this in the 70s? They could have updated this. Was the idea that we want to keep the idea that some people are going to think this really happened, and thus they're going to know if we change the dates? That's actually what the producers and writers and directors said during their big collective commentary, was yes. They wanted to keep that... This was a documentary style feel to it. Also, they didn't want to deal with basically Kevin Williamson type children with cell phones and Internet and kids that would be too smart for their own good in this and each having their own individual skills. Yeah, OnStar would have definitely made it much more problematic for the Hewitts here. Yeah, and if they didn't have to drive to meet the sheriff, if they just dialed star six nine or whatever it is on their cell phones... Oh, people, people, people. In this rural Texas area, you can't get reception in horror movies. Come on. <laughs> that would have been how they written it if they had decided to go exactly. mod. Exactly. No, no doubt that there would have been no use of cell phones or the battery would have died because someone would have forgotten to charge it. You know, there's ways out of these things. But you can't have kids that have access to the Internet in a remote area. That just, just defeats the purpose of being in a remote area. The Internet ruins horror movies, so you got to take it away. Yeah, despite you calling this a post-Scream movie, I think they tried to stay away from that kind of sly irony. They were post-Scream and that they knew what we knew. They were very self-aware, but that self-awareness was limited to making the film, not winking to the audience or anything like that. Oh, I disagree strongly. And I don't think that you complimented these performances, but I don't think a one of them feels like they actually came out of the 70s. Oh, they no, no, no. They no, don't not look at like all. they're from the 70s. They don't act like they're from the 70s. Technically, I did not compliment their acting. I said that they were likable. I said I went with them and that they acted better than, say, that guy who was the preppy in the car from part three. So, oh, come on. Uh, but I'm My not mailman saying... acts better than him. I mean, come on. I'm going to split down the middle here. I thought the acting in this was actually pretty good. I thought the, the kid who played Morgan was quite good, actually, especially in that awesome scene, which we'll talk about later, uh, in the car. I think, yes, these kids are not going to win Oscars, as we always say, but I thought, of, especially in all these movies we've watched in this series, these kids know what's going on, they're conveying what they need to convey, and the opening scenes here they're likable enough so when they get into the trouble, you actually care a little bit about what's going on. And even though it's Jessica Beale is in this, I still didn't know which one was going to survive and which didn't the whole time. Because each kid they set up had a reason to die. I agree with you that I didn't know the first time I watched this movie because I didn't know who Jessica Beale was. I didn't know who was going to live. I'm going to side with Stuart, though. They 
acted well, but they didn't feel like 70s to me. Moreover, I'm going to blame the wardrobe people. They didn't really dress like 70s either. The girls are in those low-rise jeans that didn't really get popular until the new millennium. And sure, they flare out at the bottom, bell-bottom style, but a lot of the fashions were certainly less Brady Bunch and more WB. Let's call it what it is. This is the 70s light. They don't want to make the movie in the 70s. They did it because they felt like they had to keep the mystique going that this was a real crime and that this was a docudrama. Really, you could see them gritting their teeth that they had to do a, a 70s period, and they did not want their chicks to look like bra-burning hippies. They did not. You know, they throw in the winks. There's a troll doll. There's an eight-track player. The air condition <laughs> is a fan. Like a literal just spinning fan. Yeah. Alfred E. Newman, Black Light poster they give you the 70s as someone that didn't grow up in the 70s would think it'd be like if someone told me oh we're gonna do 80s and had someone break dancing with a rubik's cube you know in so the wedding singer yeah exactly it's like <laughs> tough time yes but not really i mean that's your idea of what it must have been like and you're wrong you're oversimplifying it but i'll go with it it's not like it's offensive i like the 70s as a period as a decade so i thought it was an interesting choice but i, I gotta call foul on its sense of authenticity you did mention that the winks to the audience i thought one wing to the audience was when they were in the van i didn't know that morgan wasn't in a wheelchair until he right. actually got out and walked out and i thought that was a wink to people who have seen the original movie because he was sitting in the same position as franklin was in in the van, and he didn't move at all until they finally got out of the van. I thought that was a great wink to us, the audience, and when he finally starts to walk. I don't know if that was a wink to the audience or completely unintentional, but I can see why you'd think it. Also, he's the know-it-all. He's sitting there spouting STD stats. He is the internet from the 1970s. Yep, he's, he's <laughs> Franklin, essentially, but they've called Morgan and not yeah. in the wheelchair. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Franklin was pretty jealous that other people were hooking up and that he was alone. And this guy, his revenge is to tell Andy and his chick who are macking out that they're going to get an STD. I didn't really like this guy. I didn't dislike him like I dislike Franklin. But out of all of them, he was the one that was probably the most irksome. Maybe because he isn't know it at all. I don't know. So the actor did his job, maybe. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, not a, it's not a ding on the performance. The only performance that I didn't think was strong, and you guys seemed to like is Beale. I mean, like her whole idea of being scared was like, I'm going to put my hand to my mouth now. Like I felt like every scene, like I'm going to put my hand to my mouth. She had no moves. <laughs> I don't know. It was like, that was her one and only idea. I certainly didn't buy the fact that we we're later to learn that she grew up with older brothers who taught her rough trade kind of stuff. And that she had spent time in juvenile detention and that she had been from the wrong side of the tracks. Come on. She is a Stepford wife. Let me tell you why I know these kids did a great job in this movie. We're talking about them. This is our fourth movie. I don't think since the first one have we really spent too much time talking about the meat. Mm. We've well, always been focused on the family. Here, we're talking about the kids. We're talking about the setup. We didn't do that for parts three and four, at least. With okay. the exception of Keep Going, it's Renee Zellweger. <laughs> and I wonder why that is. I, I'll be the first to admit this is an enormous step forward from the dregs of part three and four, or even two for that matter. This is easily the best sequel in this whole saga. Easily. That's not saying a lot, in my opinion. Brock, you said that Jessica Beale was kind of the good girl. It turns out there was a subplot that was never filmed but it was written that she was pregnant during all of this and that's why she didn't drink in mexico didn't smoke the weed oh no, i like that i and like that yes that makes that would have played better that would have been, yeah because i really that was a disconnect is that she was so puritanical about their weed and she went to mexico for four days and didn't even have a tequila all she wants is a wedding ring well you don't go to mexico to get a wedding ring like that none of that made any sense to me when i was in tijuana they tried to sell me a lot of rings for my wife uh, i bet stewart then to have her be later on picking locks and hot wiring cars it mm. is a disconnect, but maybe, you know, you can make the argument that she's not drinking and not doing drugs because she's put that kind of part of her life behind her. No, it telegraphs her as the girl that's not going to die. You said she didn't know she was going to die. She's the virginal last girl. She is the cliched sole survivor of these horror things. It was obvious to me from the second she was outraged that they were smuggling dope in a horse pinata 
that right. she was going to be the one to live. I got to say, though, I like these kids because they learn. They're, they're smart. They don't insult our intelligence. As soon as there's a dead body in their trunk, there's not a whole debate about do we get rid of the drugs or not. The guy throws the drugs out. They're going to go to the cops. That's the right choice. I never felt like I was watching people make stupid mistakes because they were in a dumb horror movie. And that is why I was with them. Not necessarily because of the performance or the art direction or any of those things. It's because they were written to not insult my intelligence. And thank goodness for that. And I want to further that because later on in the movie when they go to the cops, I was thinking to myself, well, why are they going to believe four people saying she killed herself? Why wouldn't they think one of them killed her? And that became a plot point later on. And I was like, good for them. It actually makes sense. Speaking of the hitchhiker, there's actually two female hitchhikers they pick up. There's Pepper and then there's the nameless girl who kills herself. Right. I kind of thought that was like one hitchhiker too many. And when I'm writing the plot summary, I'm like, well, I can't say the hitchhiker because there's two of them. I didn't think that was needed that Pepper was the hitchhiker. Why couldn't she just have been another girlfriend to maybe add some more emotional ties instead of just she's some chick they've known for two days? I mean, it's period. There were people hitchhiking. It it calls back to an era. I mean, I get that much of it. I, I think that works. Honestly, the thing I kept wondering is... Why did they all go? Who? What is this relationship? Was Jessica Biel a sibling of any of them? Was there a brother-sister at all? No. Okay. So they just went to Mexico, and she thought she was going to get proposed to with two other guys just hitching along? Wouldn't that be a little awkward? It's your romantic weekend in Mexico, and here's two dudes with no chicks. <laughs> that is an odd thing when I started to look at it as well, was... What exactly was she doing? It would have worked better if, like, the other two guys didn't like her. Or that maybe one of them did like her, or that she liked them. Particularly with what happens later in the picture, I thought there needed to be a little bit more development between her and Andy, who's sort of the dumb blonde that thinks brains look like lasagna or whatever. He's, you know, obviously going to get it. But I felt like because of what she ends up doing with that character in the basement, I don't know, that we should have had more. I also think that they missed an opportunity with Pepper the Hitchhiker because Pepper just met these people two days ago. She could have ran away and let, leave them to their own devices. Why she you know, stuck around with these people, she should have said, screw this and left. Made more sense to me. I like the way it divided in gender lines, though. I think once there's a dead body in the car, it mm -hmm. really is the girls are like, we have to do something with this body. We cannot treat it like waste. And mm -hmm. the guys are all like, eh, I don't know. We got to get out of here. I got to get the Skinnered. I yeah. thought that that was an effective conflict. I like the fact that the tension wasn't all between the locals and the kids, that there was infighting as well. All right. So they take the body to the local stop and feed with the appetizing meats in the counter with the flies. I get confused. In the original, it's a gas station and it's run by the old man is the character. And in this time, it's Luda May, right? This is the mother. Correct. Do we ever find out what her hours are? Because every other <laughs> every other time she's in this movie, she's in the house. Like she doesn't even seem to get. She's kind of a shut in. But she does go and run this little convenience store, huh? Well, if you think about it, and again, this is something I didn't think about until I was listening to the commentaries. They realized one had gotten away. Remember that the second hitchhiker girl who blows her head off did so with the sheriff's gun. And so she'd been there with her family or friends and her little boy, and she'd escaped. So they were kind of on high alert trying to catch her before she alerted real authorities. That said, she should really stock up on Charleston chews and moon pies and things that gas stations really have. Severed pig heads? Really? Come on. That's not a very good cover for looking normal. It didn't appear to get that much tourist traffic. Why did the girl give up so easily? Why did she kill herself? I mean, I understand she was traumatized and all of that. But really, like, she's in a van with people. She has a gun. She's obviously survived a lot. Like, why give up right then and there? I feel like that's a little bit of a cheat that she would just blow her head off right at that moment without even seeing any of the family. Well, if you go through this movie and you find out that every single person you meet is part of the family, you just don't know it. And then you find these four people and you think you're saved and then they're taking you right back to where you don't want to go. 
And after person after person's part of the family, maybe she thought they were part of the family. I would be putting some bullets in them. Like, I don't know. If she's a fighter and a scrapper, I would have shot them and kept driving. What I would have really liked when I heard they were making a prequel, I thought they were making her story. Mm. So that's what I would have mm. liked to see is what happened to her. And in fact, when I went in to see the prequel a couple years later, I thought it was all going to be what led up to the hitchhiker walking down the road. What happened to her is left unexplained. Yeah, she's a plot point. She's not really exactly. here. We also, though, see one of our heroes give up the same way where the, he had just endured so much that he wanted to be. Yeah, but his life did suck. I mean, I gotta <laughs> say, out of all the characters that suffer in this movie, Andy is the one that, like, man, I just wouldn't want to have been him. I gotta say, it turned out really bad for him. We're introduced to Jedediah, and after all of the evil kids we've seen in this series, did you trust him? I couldn't get past the fake teeth. I, I knew exactly what was going on there. I don't understand why there's a little boy there either. And they, they had the other kid later on with the kidnapping, but this kid seemed to be actually legitimately in the family. I, I just did not care for this kid at all. They should have cut him. This is a worthless character. It does absolutely nothing. He drops out of the story even. Like by the end, he's not even a factor. We never find out whether he is evil or not. I think they pull their punch on that. But one of his early lines is, promise me you won't hurt me. Well, is he really abused by this household, or is he trying to be conniving? And if he's trying to be conniving, when does he get to be evil? I thought he was just the innocent who remained untouched by the evils around him. Is he an actual genetic descendant of these people, or is he just a hanger-on from one of these folks that have driven by and the rest of them got killed? Well, at this point, we don't know if any of these people are related. And this entire movie is not really explained other than... Luda May says she's Leatherface's mama. Yeah, uh, and I I took their word for that, but I guess we'll find out in the beginning. I haven't seen the beginning, so I don't know. They go to the plantation house. I love this house for cinematic reasons. It just looks so great out there completely alone. And the plantation style when dealing with the South, you know, brings up the whole slavery evils i just love that style of house for the hewitts it was good art direction i did appreciate yeah. the house i heard in the commentary of the second one that they were able to use the house again even though the people who live in the house are getting kind of bored of tourists knocking to see where leatherface lives but how can they get there when there's no place to drive up you know this may another thing that made me mad at that kid he told them a lie and either he did it for conniving reasons or he's stupid. <laughs> Why? Like, they have a functional car and they need to get to the sheriff's and he said to sends them walking through dark woods when they could have driven there and that the entire rest of the movie would have played out very, very differently. Yeah, but at least these people know how to light some wood shots, don't they? He actually got the idea that it wasn't daytime <laughs> the way they lit those woods. Yeah, the cinematography is an interesting one. I don't know if you guys know or not, but this is the exact same cinematographer as the original movie. We know because you've been telling us since the first movie. <laughs> yes, well, Daniel Pearl, and he's a big-time dude. I mean, this guy has shot anyone that matters in the 80s. He shot their music video. Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, Duran Duran, The Reflex, Van Halen, R.E.M., Guns N' Roses, U2, Whitney Houston, Mariah, Janet. He's done everybody. Seminal, seminal music video photographer. And he had gotten so far away from doing horror movies that when he was asked by Marcus Nispel, who did do music videos for him, he said, Marcus was like, hey, I finally got a movie. I'm going to do Texas Chainsaw. Will you do it? He had to think about it because by this point, he had a wife and kids and he wasn't as cavalier about the violence. But of course, money and you know the idea of working on features again was tempting enough. It's a very different style. I think we can all agree that the rawness is all gone now. Yes, thank goodness. The camera feels professionally handled. I disagree. There's nothing you can say or do to make me feel like this movie looks scarier or more intense than the first film. It is more classically scary. It is more dark and it's more immersive. I no longer feel like I'm watching a grainy movie. It brings me into the experience more. And that's a huge absence. That's a huge loss to lose that grain, to lose that rawness. It feels like every other horror movie. Seeing that grain takes me out of the experience and never lets me forget that I'm staring at a screen. When I'm seeing something that's a little bit more well-made, I can lose myself into the horror and be 
able to be scared more easily because I'm more immersed and less constantly reminded it's a movie, it's a movie, it's a movie. I'll turn that argument on its head. When you have trick shots, like pulling back through the car, through the hole in the head and through that, I would argue it's just as taking you out of the experience. For me, if you're trying to sell me on the on the idea of a really raw, gritty movie, the best way to do it is to give me a raw, gritty image. I'm going to come down right down the middle here between the two of you. This movie is scary again, has tension again, has the build again, has an actual, you have no idea what's going to happen to which kid and, and when kind of feel to it that the original movie had, yet it does it in a whole different way. To get the grittiness feel, they had to use that documentary footage in the beginning. Arnie, I, I think I hear what you're saying, Stuart, I hear what you're saying, and I think both movies work individually. I'm just saying I prefer my horror films to be a bit more gothic and i like modern slick looking movies let me ask you a question though while we're talking about this exact thing in this very movie when the guy's leg gets cut off didn't you feel the tension was cut by how fake the fake leg looked on the ground i didn't think it looked that fake how how does a real amputated leg look on the ground i i would never (laughs) once thought that looks fake i just went Oh, crap. He just lost a leg. And what I thought was, thank God Leatherface is finally using a chainsaw the way a chainsaw should be used. You use a chainsaw to body part. There goes a body part. Yeah. (laughs) You You don't poke poke with it. Yeah, you actually slice with it. Yeah, I hear you. We kind of skipped over Kemper's death, but I loved Kemper's death because it was just so sudden. And I like that they kept the metal door in the wall kind of thing. Yeah, and he's still called by a hammer as well. It's the same death as Kurt. But Mm -hmm. it's set up entirely differently, obviously. I like just the raw violence of it and how sudden it was. It is straight out of the first one, but Mm -hmm. I like that kill in the first one, too. I I think it completely worked. Has any child been named Kemper prior to 1990? Like, where did they get that name? That is as yuppie 90s parents as possible. There's nobody in the 60s or 50s that named their kid Kemper. I refuse to believe this. He had to die for that reason alone. I thought it was his last name. The whole yeah. time. Yeah. It very well could be because Kemper is technically a last name. That I will buy, but they call him Kemper. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. He's just listed as Kemper in the credits. So I don't think we ever really knew. Maybe it's Cosmo Kemper. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about <laughs> the real deal. Leatherface. So here we, we get a lot of scenes, including this is our introduction to him. But we get a lot of scenes of him. It's a new take on him entirely. He's not cross-dressing. I missed that. I missed that component of the Leatherface. I've got to say that this one, they definitely felt like we want to have him as butch and big and scary as possible. We want to make him the boogeyman. And that is a very different take than what Toby Hooper had. And I think you miss the humor of Leatherface, the sort of tragic quality, the Southern tragic quality of Leatherface is all gone now. Now, like a lot of this, you mentioned earlier, the Rob Zombie Halloween redo and all that. A lot of him and the end of this movie feels very similar to that to me. I feel like it was the same idea, which is we just need a big Hulk to intimidate people. It's less in my opinion. New Line Cinema put this out. Platinum Dunes made it. So New Line actually wasn't involved in the making of this. They just distributed. But what they were trying to do is create a slasher series. You know, you want to put it out there on the right foot. We talked during, I think, Texas Chainsaw 3 about how Leatherface had never graduated to the A-list. Despite being their pappy, he was never as embraced as Freddy and Jason and Michael. Mm -hmm. I think this was their attempt to make him something that modern audiences will appeal to. And modern audiences are going to laugh at a big man in a dress. Again, it's funny. Yeah, and and I did in the original. I mean, I, my point is that they made him an extrovert. He's the killer. He was not the killer in the original. The killer was the hitchhiker and the cook. He just prepared the dinner. That was it. He stayed in the kitchen. He didn't want to go outside. And I thought that was charming. I thought it made it seem more like a mockable 50s family. It's a nuclear family that they're making fun of. And here, now he's just the boogeyman. And he doesn't even need the rest of the family. I think they try to humanize him more by showing us his face and why he puts on the other faces. I think keeping him in that dark, dungy basement. I think the leather face they gave us here works for this movie. 
and I did not miss the cross-dressing, although I don't think it could have worked here. They also took out the cannibal angle, so it, it didn't mm-hmm. really seem to need Leatherface in that role in this movie. In this movie, he was the muscle, but I did like that they gave him a reason for his M.O. of putting skin on his face. And it was a good idea to do that. And it also, it worked completely later on in the movie. I think for this movie, it was a good choice to cut that out. Why did he put it, why did he put it on his face? Because he's ugly? No, because he's missing his nose. Right, that's what I mean. So because he's missing a nose, I'm going to cut off someone else's face. And now I have a nose? Yeah, he just wants to look normal. He just wants to have a normal face like everybody else. He and wants now- to be normal, but he's chasing people around and cutting them up with a chainsaw. Everyone's vain in some way, Stuart. I mean, I, I mean, that's all I got for you there. They actually had filmed a scene of Leatherface's deformed face back for part three, but it didn't work or the MPAA didn't like it or something. So it wasn't an entirely original idea to this one that Leatherface was deformed, but this was the first time they actually left it in the film. I couldn't really tell you whether he was deformed or had been defaced. Because on one hand, you have this kid who looks like a mutant running around Jedediah, and I just assumed he came out looking that way. And then on the other hand, you have Mort in the wheelchair, and something happened to his legs. And so I really didn't know whether these guys have leprosy or whether (laughs) he was born that way. I mean, I really didn't. I guess it'll fall on the, the beginning to tell me. But I can't say conclusively that I even understood why he was doing what he was doing. So for me, there wasn't enough there. What's funny is when Monty came out without his legs after having just watched the first four, part of me was thinking, did they get hungry and eat Monty's legs? I totally believe that. I expect to see that, actually. The other thing was, though, I just like the fact that these are fucked up people. We've had that since the very first one that these people all have their various things and I liked that about them. So I just went with this guy has a messed up face and this guy's an amputee and Leatherface is missing a nose. The payoff was fantastic when Jessica Beale sees her boyfriend's face on his on Leatherface. Okay. All right, that is the best scene in the whole movie. That is awesome. Great mask. I won't jump into up and down for this movie much, but that ten seconds is fantastic. It's the only time where I felt like this movie matched the hysteria of the last 20 minutes. The original movie. The finale dinner scene is still to this day creepy, crawly, madness, fervid, fever dream. And it still impacts me when I see it. Nothing in this movie comes close except that scene, but it really works. Jessica Biel seeing her boyfriend again, who she's been looking for, and it's just his face on the killer brilliant my favorite scene in the whole movie is morgan with the cop in the car having him recreate the suicide siding with brock on this i thought that scene was not only effective it added tension it added suspense you didn't know if the kid was going to walk away from that you're yelling at the screen point the gun at the cop like you were siding with morgan terrified for him what was going to happen you felt uncomfortable for him having to move over to sit on the brains you saw in morgan's head that's how smart this kid was and how smart the screenplay was that you saw that morgan was figuring out what was going on to him and he was scared to death about it and then arlie ermy didn't let up this scene alone was really for the first time and i agree with you that the inner scene was much more uncomfortable but this one certainly was uncomfortable suspenseful and tension filled And man, what a brilliant sequence. Well, Brock, you've segued to something. Stuart, earlier you said let's talk about the big guy, Leatherface. I think Leatherface is overshadowed in this movie by the pure evil of Arlie Ermey. I think Sheriff Hoyt steals the show and comes out as even more evil. He may not have a chainsaw, but man, he gets all the great lines. He gets all the great sadistic actions. Leatherface just shows up and cuts, but the sheriff. The sheriff is one dirty, evil motherfucker. And what's great about this movie is you don't know that to start because he looks pretty normal. Oh, come on. If you've seen any Texas Chainsaw, you know that he's on it. That was not a big reveal. That was no surprise. Okay, but when I saw this remake, having only seen the original 15 years earlier... I didn't know he was in on it. You look at that and go, the guy from Full Metal Jacket's going to play a nice lawman? I thought it was typecasting. I'm, 
I wish I could be as enthusiastic as you guys, but I actually didn't really like this character. I, I thought he was kind of dull. I, I thought it was something I'd seen a lot of. A bad cop who pushes kids into a worse situation. It, it, I don't know. I, I, I didn't really get into that scene you guys are talking about. I, just, I didn't really like Morgan either, so I think that was a, a factor in it. I didn't like Morgan until that scene where I felt so sorry for Morgan. Having to wrap the body in cellophane and meanwhile, Arlie's making the innuendos about the dead body. It was all just so grotesque and wonderful. I don't know. You know, it's almost too on the nose casting with me. I was like, Arlie Ermey, I just expect that out of him. I almost felt like you needed someone who does play a good lawman. You needed Andy Griffith to do that part. (laughs) And then I would have been shocked. Then I would have been like, whoa. But to see Arlie Ermey be a jerk to somebody, well, I saw Phil Metal Jacket. It's just not that surprising. What I found funny in listening to the commentaries is Arlie basically improved his whole dialogue, too. Oh, I believe it. I definitely believe that. So all the sick shit, that's him. <laughs> but he's been playing that character for 20 years. When he gets jobs, nine times out of ten, it's because of Full Metal Jacket and that drill sergeant. I, I agree with that. The sheriff was more fun for me to watch. I do agree that he stole the movie completely. But this Leatherface certainly was terrifying as well in a different kind of way. I think, you know, we talk a lot about what horror is. And, you know, to say this movie is a slasher movie because of Ermi's character in this, I think isn't completely accurate. I think this is more of a horror movie than a slasher movie. I'm splitting some hairs here with this particular entry, but I think it's a legitimate point to point out that because of R. Lee in this movie, it ups the game a little bit than, say, kill a lot of teenagers kind of movie. There's an evil there that you get from him, and then you get the bully, slasher, killer guy in Leatherface. There's two different kinds of evil going on here. Here's the thing I guess I'm feeling like. I didn't feel like they were a family. Like, I didn't feel like those two shared a household together. Mm. And I did get that from the original movie. It felt like two different villains. And one in a more traditional slasher movie, the the Leatherface of this movie. Mm. And then one that's more like the evil cop, the stepfather, the the bad authority figure. You know, mm-hmm. the more of a thriller type character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with Brock. They got the, their chocolate in my peanut butter, and I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would have liked it more if I believed that it was a family. And I guess that's what I am missing a lot uh, that the first one nailed is that sense of community, that they, this killing is for a purpose. And here, I didn't, they didn't even really establish that they eat the bodies. I didn't really even understand why they were doing what they were doing. The lack of the cannibal angle is weakening this a little bit. I mean, it's kind of hinted at because Leatherface does put butcher paper on the leg, but that's the only time we even get a hint of that. What this movie lacked is it didn't have the dinner scene Mm. like it had in the first one and several of the others. There was the scene where Jessica Biel wakes up and meets Mama, but it didn't have the family coming together as a unit and forced to interact in front of their guest. It, it ended way too quick with Beale just being shoved in the basement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they'd played that scene a little bit longer and kind of looked at the source material a little more for that scene and maybe thrown in the grandpa character, you know, bring down the grandpa that we think. Yeah, it was more supposed to serve that character as someone that was sort of an invalid. I, I didn't I, I can't say I miss grandpa because, of course, grandpa is a very passive character. I mean, except for the first movie, he's never done anything. It's not a character I'm necessarily enamored with. I didn't feel like, oh, I got to have grandpa. But at the same time, he did give that sense of tradition, the idea, the value, the whole ethics of a family that kills together and stays together. I don't think they're supposed to be direct parallels. They just came up with a bunch of gross people. Do you think that hurts the movie to not have it be a family? To me, it did, obviously. To you, I'm hearing it's not a big deal. No, it didn't bother me. Not in the least. I enjoyed the movie for what it was and didn't sit around wishing for what it wasn't. I'm not saying did it ruin the movie for you. I'm I'm not going to argue that it did. I'm just going to say it's a choice they made that 
makes it lesser than the original film in my mind. They told me they were family, or at least they all live in the same house anyway. So they're all in on it together and have no problems what the other person is doing. So except one part, the old man says, I, I don't get involved in his affairs or something like that. And I thought, Okay, so they actually have some history going on here. They Maybe he got reprimanded for sticking his nose into someone else's business. Maybe that's how he lost his legs. What do I know? But I agree with Arnie that this is first time in a long time that I wasn't really caring about what the movie doesn't have. Because the, what the movie does have, it's working for me. It so, definitely is aided incredibly by the fact that we've just watched Texas Chainsaw 2. <laughs> yeah. I got to say, when I originally saw this movie, I was down on it. I'm like, ah, oh, this is just your typical, nothing special. They didn't capture anything about the original that worked. I don't like it. And now I can actually see it for the mediocre to pretty good movie that it is. And it largely is because I've seen what bad is. And that's mm-hmm. bad. That's Texas 2 through 4. So Pepper dies. Who cares? <laughs> Aaron gets thrown into the basement. And Andy's there with his one leg hung on the hook. Now, the hook is something we've seen ever since the first one. This is, what, our third or fourth time seeing this hook. Mm-hmm. I thought this time I loved it because you actually got to see him trying to lift himself off the hook and just plunging on the hook more, that they took the hook to the next level. Yeah, they did. That worked. I was less enamored with the whole, I've got to kill you, partly because, as I said earlier, if they had established some kind of relationship between Aaron and Andy, it would have meant something. Otherwise, he was just the tool macking with the hitchhiker in the back. I just didn't feel like she was losing anything other than the obvious horror of having to do somebody. And she stabs him in the stomach and not the heart. I'm like, he's not going to die from that. Yes, I had the same thought. All you've done is increase his pain immensely. Neil, you can cup your hand to your mouth all you want. You, you're not helping. She actually was really crying during that scene. She was quite distraught. It was not hand to mouth there. You're downplaying it but i was so shocked because i've watched a lot of horror and i cannot recall the time where our heroine mercy killed her friend who could have possibly escaped he was not dying in agony he was not oh come on come on what would that look like well i mean Monty has no legs and he's alive he would have had to rip out his back there would be huge gaping holes in his back okay but isn't it the cliche of the horror movie? Brock, you've been watching these with us. Didn't you also think there's the I'll come back for you moment? No, the guy was meat. He was dead. You keep talking. Yeah, that's right. That's In right. your face, Arnie. In your face. Brock Back of blood alone. The man's bleeding yeah. from his back and his leg. He was right to say. Yeah, the, the leg had been cauterized with salt. Oh, God. Oh. A most painful God. cauterization. But... Oh. Like, she should have slit his throat is what she should have done. I mean, yeah, really she couldn't killed. reach. He was kind of up there, but yeah. yeah. She could have stood on the piano. Mm. I don't know. I was so shocked when I first saw this movie. I'm like, the heroine just killed her friend. I've never seen that. I've never seen that. I've seen that no. a lot. Where? Uh, give me 24 hours and I'll come up with it. That's okay. There are movies where people have to make those tough choices. I want to point out a subtle touch in the scene that we're talking about that when she first walks in to see him on the hook and hanging up there. He's playing the piano with his toes. He's trying to get his footing. He's not just, you know, playing chopsticks here. <laughs> He's trying to get the hook out of his back. But it was it was so slow and so and so like he had no energy left. He was spent and he was playing, he's dinging the the piano and while you took it for him to getting footing, what I took it was a last bit of humanity, a last bit of something pleasant at, in his last minutes that he was just trying to like, oh, okay, I can do that. I can make that happen. And to me, it was eerie, and it, it really added a kind of a tone to that scene. No, I, I took it completely <laughs> as he, he wanted to get off the goddamn hook. Fair and enough. I'm going to come right down in the middle and, <laughs> and say that he was playing the own theme music to his escape. <laughs> it was the Smurfs theme song, but he didn't it's still... know it. But he was, you know, he was actually a musician. He had the musician hair, and you know, did you guys notice Harry Knowles' head in a bowl? Oh yeah, I did not like I, that. I, honestly, I wouldn't know Harry Knowles if his head was in my house. But I've heard enough, right in Fangoria and director's commentary and everything else. So yes, I I knew it, but I oh, you didn't know it from recognizing it. I I recognized him. I, I recognized too. I, I wouldn't recognize the man if he was sitting on my face. Talk about <laughs> a moment that takes you out of this and makes you feel like it's a movie. 
It's a scream uh, moment. This is what I'm talking about, guys. You say they're not here. There's the scream moment. I don't think that was a scream moment. I thought that was Michael Bay telling Harry Knowles what he thinks of him. And Harry Knowles going along with it because he wants to be in a movie. Uh, you know? I will throw this in. Harry Knowles was around when they were filming the original. He is based in Austin. He has memories. He's talked about Leatherface coming over in costume and character while they were filming that. So okay. I think he's got, a little, he's got a little bit more legitimacy than just any cameo you could throw in there another screamy little reference what's the name of the meat packing plant blair referencing their own blair witch ending okay according to the people who made it they could be lying because they don't want to be called out but they said that they hadn't thought about the blair witch and the production designer was greg blair so they just went with that coincidences do happen but the, all i can judge is based on the movie it now played to me like a scream moment I like the fact that it went to the slaughterhouse. I know I'm, you were saying you missed the dinner, but I actually thought that was appropriate. I did like that. I loved a lot of the chases in this movie. I loved the chase through the sheets earlier mm. when Andy gets it. Yep. And then I loved the chase through the slaughterhouse. This movie had a great knack. This director, I think, had a great knack for taking things that would normally be wide open and finding a way to make them claustrophobic and labyrinthine. And the sheets, you never knew where Leatherface was coming from. And the same thing in the slaughterhouse when she's running through the cattle gates and the lockers. I just loved that sense of what's around the next corner. I thought that it was the same exact scene, just different situation. But both times I enjoyed it. And it worked both times. I especially liked the climax of the scene through the laundry. One of the few times we see blood splatter on the sheets, completely appropriate, of course. But in the slaughterhouse... You don't get that, right? It's the big slabs of meat and it's the locker. It really worked both times to use the same device. I wish they had ended the movie here. I really feel like... Completely agree with you. There is too much chasing. It's not that they weren't good or well-staged. It was just that this last part really felt like a lot of running around. And I, I was having flashbacks. Like, I feel like I've seen this scene. And it ended up really reminding me of the climax in the old house of Halloween. Well, of, of course. course, this movie came five years, four years before. I think Rob Zombie took a lot from this movie. I, had we done these podcasts in a different order, we might be raking Zombie over the coals for lifting so much of the finale for his movie from this. But it did feel very familiar to me. And I really feel like, ah, now that we're in a literal slaughterhouse, this is where you should end the movie. And we still kept running. I like the fact that the movie wants you to think it ends here because Aaron cuts off Leatherface's arm, which I I was shocked by because that seemed to incapacitate him for future sequels. Mm -hmm. But then in addition to that, she runs off and she sees the trucker and yet think the movie's over, which I really liked. It was a fake out. You're kind of now relaxed. You're starting to gather your stuff, right? Because that's how the first one ended is when the trucker showed up. But no, it continues because the sheriff has to get his the fact that she got the kid away which was a nice thing to do and it feels right that she did it the whole time i'm like they're gonna save the kid yeah the sheriff gets his there sure but i took that as the whole thing as she's going after the kid but then again if she's going after the kid and she has the kid next to him going back and forth over the sheriff isn't very safe for that child in the front seat it might be safer than leaving the sheriff alive to hunt them i I had a different impression when she was taking the kid i thought it was going to be her barter chip out of there if you want this kid back you're going to let me leave i'm going to walk out of here i thought it was leverage i had no sense from her ever about maternal instincts and if they had kept her that she was pregnant i really think that would have helped make that stronger but she's not maternal like i don't believe jessica beale super mom like she doesn't come across as that at all in here and i think it was a poor choice to eliminate the pregnancy it would have given more of a credence to why she would want to save an innocent child from this horrible household i do agree that with that when i was re-watching this for this podcast i'm like okay so she's brought back against her will and she's trying to escape I didn't get the whole, I'm going to steal the baby as I escape. And I I honestly, though, take it as it was a moment of opportunity. I don't think that she necessarily would have gone out of her way, but she sees the baby alone because everybody's left. And she's like, all right, I'll grab the baby, too. Yeah. If she had been picked up on the side of the road and gotten out of there, she wouldn't have made a pit stop. No way. She would have gotten help and they would have leave child services to come in there. (laughs) I do love that not only does she hit the sheriff with the car. But then she backs up over the sheriff again, 
and then drives over the sheriff one more time. Because at this point, you've been with that sheriff for 90 minutes. The fucker deserves it. And you root for it. Yeah, it's a crowd cheering moment for sure. Mm -hmm. Then we get the last cheat where Leatherface chainsaws the car. How he happened to get there with his missing arm bleeding, presumably. I guess he packed it in salt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we've never established him as a human being. He feels like a monstrous character. I, I don't give him the same physics and logistics as I would a, 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 the sheriff, even. Like, I would believe if she had run over Leatherface that many times, he could still get up and chase her. I knew the sheriff was dead. Much like Michael Myers. Yeah, exactly. This character <laughs> feels exactly like Michael Myers, or at least knew Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And when we get to the next movie, I think we'll see even more of that. Final scene, we return to the old police footage and get one last shot of Leatherface still out there, still killing. Setting up a sequel. I love the line. The crime scene was not properly secured. Love that. <laughs> Laughed my head off when I heard that. That was funny. We all know where they got this. I mean, and at the time of this release, Blair Witch would have been even more freshly in people's minds. I mean, it's such a cheat. I don't know. It works and it doesn't. I don't know. I did like it because it was a nice final scare. I mean, this standing in the corner moment. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. Like, you can't give them props for this theft. It's complete theft. But if it works, it works, okay? And it, I'm not sure I liked it either. I thought it was a funny line at the end, but the one last scare felt like a pedestrian note for a horror movie that this one didn't particularly need. I like that it wasn't telegraphed. I didn't see it coming. Well, yeah, you knew I, once I, they I, were in the house, right? Like you knew once they cut back to it that that's what they were going to do. Right? No, I kind of thought that it would be like, you know, saying nobody was ever found. I didn't know Leatherface was going to come out and attack them because you don't expect that because you think they'd secure that crime scene. Exactly. <laughs> and he wouldn't necessarily want to hang out if the cops were there. But Exactly. Right. So that just leaves Brock. Stewart, do you recommend the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Brock. You know, it's amazing. I do. I really had a good time with this one. And maybe what Stewart said earlier is one of the reasons why is that we've watched three movies of Drek to get here. But what I thought this movie did well was it added back the sense of tension the first one had. Now, yes, it's a whole different kind, but at least they have something going here and it builds and there's good characterizations enough for me in this sense of this movie. There's enough here to be entertained watching a horror movie. And especially in this series, it's a lacking that considerably i want to also point out though that this movie is made in 2003 in the new kind of style of horror movies but there's not excessive gore there's not excessive splatter shots they did it subtly just like the first movie did where they showed less gore less splatter with a chainsaw movie of all things they were able to get you scared and get you worked up without showing you a ton of excessive blood, gore, and violence. If you saw this movie and saw that Platinum Dooms made it, I could completely understand why you would be excited about them picking up Friday the 13th. I could see why people had hope for them. So, yes, I recommend this movie, especially for this series. Stuart, I want to be clear. There is no reason to see any other movie other than the original. None of them really add much to the lore, certainly to the horror. They don't really push the genre forward in any way, any of them. But this is easily, easily the best Platinum Dunes horror reboot. It's easily the second best in the series. And it's a pretty good, entertaining B-movie. I don't think it's a great movie, but I think it was fun to watch. And I was surprised at how easy it went down after my initial reservations when I saw it you know, six or seven years ago. So given the fact that much like I recommended Rob Zombie's Halloween as a reboot, as a contrast to the original, I would not want you to see this movie without having seen the original. I can get, see the merits of both and recommend both. This one much more weekly than the original, but I'll give it a faint recommend. I recommend this movie highly. I, unlike Stuart, don't think you need to watch the original to enjoy this, because when I watched this in theaters in 2003, I barely remembered the original one at all and enjoyed the living hell out of this. I completely misremembered the original and enjoyed this. I went back and saw the original 
and I didn't think it was as fun as this. I enjoy this movie so much more than I enjoy any of the other Texas Chainsaw Massacres that we've watched this series. It's the high point of this whole series for me. I'm going to preview the next one. I don't like the next one as much as I like this one. And I think that it's just a great horror film. I highly recommend this movie. And I'll agree with Stuart. Hands down, the best Platinum Dunes film I've seen. And I would say, is it a better remake than Rob Zombie's Halloween? Yes, I'm going to go down and say yes. This is the best reboot remake of a horror franchise that we've covered for now playing. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I officially will go on the record with both of you saying this is the best Platinum Dunes remake of all of them so far. Hey, it was this movie that caused now playing to get into its retrospective format. Because after seeing what Platinum Dunes did with Texas Chainsaw, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're doing Friday the 13th. That's gonna <laughs> rock. Stuart, rock. We're doing this. We're changing the <laughs> format of the show because I'm so excited because Platinum Dunes is back, baby. And if you want to hear those Friday the 13th shows, those original shows we did when we changed the format, you can go to our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. You can hear Stuart phone it in. Yeah, <laughs> and literally. And you can also listen to our Halloween retrospective, our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective, Star Trek, Terminator, a whole bunch of different kinds of series, all there at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archive section. You can find a link there to our forums where you can discuss this movie and every other movie we reviewed with other listeners like yourselves. And if you like the show, please go to iTunes, leave us a positive review so other people like yourselves can find us. And while you're at it, go to the link on our homepage to find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at NowPlayingPod, where we give little mini-reviews of things we've watched that week and preview what's coming up next in each retrospective series we do. And if you just can't get enough horror, we are also reviewing Child's Play. The entire Chucky series. But we're not making this available to the general public. What we're doing is offering this as a thank you to our loyal listeners. For a few months now, we've had a donate button up on the homepage. Well, if you donate $10 or more before this Halloween, we're going to give you, as a sign of our thanks, this Child's Play series that's never going to be released again. After Halloween, it's over, folks. Even if they do another one, well, you won't get to hear us talk about these earlier Chucky films. So it's our way of saying thank you to those who help keep this show running and just help cover some of our movie ticket prices and our bandwidth so if you want to hear us talk child's play the donate button is at the bottom of our website nowplayingpodcast.com and then we will email you instructions on how to listen to the child's play podcasts yeah when you listen to those friday the 13th shows and i sound like this (laughs) that is because i had to buy a microphone that costs some money. So if you don't want to hear me sound like this, donate. <laughs> and we want to be very clear about this, folks. We're not selling you content. Now playing is free. will always be free. This is a thank you, like a tote bag or a T-shirt during a pledge drive on PBS. A thank you gesture from us for donating money to us so we can continue to bring you these podcasts week in and week out. Absolutely. Notice we're not doing this and taking five weeks off of our regular show. This is an extra bonus. Well, Brock Stewart, thank you for joining me. And we'll be back next time when the end is the beginning. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The beginning, that is. I think I smell bullshit again. (laughs) No, he's out there with a chainsaw. No. No, he had a chainsaw. He was chasing me with a chainsaw. Thank you for listening to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre retrospective series from Now Playing. It's what the public wants! Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we cut into a new installment in this classic franchise. People may not remember what we say here tonight, but they sure as shit gonna remember what we do. You can find other Now Playing retrospective series such as Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Terminator, Star Trek, and others at our website. Me and Bubba, my little brother, we listen to you every night. Go to NowPlayingPodcast.com and click the archives link to find those series as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar and Inception. We got the means, we got the machine. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films with other podcast listeners. First, I'm going to kill you. 
It ain't no fucking biggie. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post new episodes, and the Now Playing hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Welcome to my world. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. If you enjoy Now Playing, please support the show. You can find a link to donate to the show using PayPal on our homepage, or you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more at the Now Playing Cafe Press Store. If you need anything, just tweet. <laughs> and remember, if you make a donation of $10 or more made by October 31st, 2010, you will receive as our thank you the exclusive Now Playing Child's Play retrospective series. Now playing, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series is edited by Jay and Arnie. Boys, you never should have been doing this. Now playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Canon Films, Columbia Pictures, or Platinum Dunes. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the intellectual property of its copyright and trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. I'll speak plain. Saves time. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010. Brazos. Brazos. Yippee! Today we are discussing The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 2003 remake starring Jessica Biel, Jonathan Tucker, Erica, what was the giggle? Because you, what you said, it was like it's a game show. <laughs> Jessica Biel. <laughs> Come on down. You're the next bitch to get the chainsaw. <laughs> this was my introduction to Jen. Jennifer Beale and all of her great assets. I mean, Jennifer Beale, Jennifer yes, Beale flash dance. Her water falls on top of her from the ceiling in a big pail. <laughs> Absolutely. Well it, well, it actually does later in the movie, but yes, there is what no, about, there's no edge to Jennifer Beale ever. What, what about Jessica Beale? Oh, right. Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you don't, uh, do I have to really say that all again? I'm not going to. You just leave it if, in. Arnie's think, blooper is now my blooper. There you go. <laughs> I think we have some awesome bloopers. I don't know about the show. Yeah. <laughs> we have enough bloopers already to last the show and the next. Wow. This is like the third time I've been the referee in this his conversation. Come down. That's your that job, ridiculous. Rock. That's your job. <laughs> Foul come down right in the middle. I want you to come right down in the middle. <laughs> yes, come down I in the got, middle. I got again. a yellow flag on this one.